Alexander von Humboldt was centuries ahead of his time. We'll bring him up to date on Scribble. Welcome to Scribble, 30 minutes of conversation, comments, and reviews on reading and writing, editing, publishing, and selling books. I'm Don Wooten. Rebecca Wee is off today. Carl Sagan's TV series wasn't the first Cosmos. Dr. Stephen Hager will tell us about the original on today's Scribble. Let's see if I can remember it. Friedrich Wilhelm Heinrich Alexander von Humboldt. Why do people have so many names back in those days? Excellent question, Don. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent question. It seems as if they just put all their grandfather's names. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. But uh, you are the third of the four lecturers in the free series, and you pick Cosmos. And Alexander von Humboldt, why? I have, in the past five years, uh, discovered Humboldt as an individual, not necessarily Cosmos, uh, but definitely Humboldt as an individual who, who, uh, who could be someone as a guidepost for me. Um, for how I live my life and how I do my work as a biologist. It's his, uh, his life and his writings as well, absolutely, um, are different than most uh, contemporary scientists and scientists even back in his day. Um, and the distinction between him and other scientists was how you approach understanding the natural world. Uh, he obviously spent his life doing that. Um, but he argued for a, uh, a way of absolutely doing the top type of science you can do to understand whatever phenomenon you're trying to explore. So the material aspect of it mm-hmm. is deeply, deeply serious about doing the best science possible in understanding the material part of the natural world. But he was also deeply serious about what role does our emotions play in our understanding of the natural world? What role do our feelings play in the natural world as we're doing our research, as we're out in the natural world uh, experiencing it in a material way, but underlying that, um, maybe in a metaphysical sense, uh, you cannot like disconnect our emotions from what you're seeing, from what you're hearing, tasting, smelling, um, etc., and uh, and so so much so much of those two things, the material aspect of the natural world and how to understand it, but underlying that the uh, the uh, spiritual part is really fascinating to me, and it made a lot of sense at this point in my life. Well, he sounded to me a little brief biography I read of him <clears throat> was that he was very much a contemporary person an environmentalist, an yes. ecologist. Uh, yeah, absolutely. He seemed to be wrapped up in those things way back when I don't think that was the fashion. Yeah. It, and and that, that makes him 
just that aspect of his work makes him fascinating. Makes him very fascinating. And, and he was emerging at a time, um, you know, coming off of the Middle Ages, coming off of the Renaissance, and, and, and understanding the world in more detail and with more rigor, um, where scientific disciplines were starting to become delineated or identified uh, objectified and delineated. And there became this uh, rather clear, from my understanding, rather clear distinction and separation between geologists and geology and geographers and geography and what we now know as ecology and ecologists, you know. Um, so those distinctions were there. And he tried to blur those boundaries, especially in cosmos. He really tried to blur those boundaries and in cosmos and in his own work and in his own worldview, he's bringing this all together in a, in a monumental uh, um, work of cosmos. And uh, you're right about that. You know, the two volumes of cosmos, <laughs> he wrote those, but then he couldn't stop. And when he, uh, I think he was in his, when he started his 80s, he said they were kind of extra years, and so he should keep writing. Mm. So he did. Yeah. Two and a half more volumes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, the latter volumes were published after he passed on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the first volume was published in 1845, I think. It took 10 years to complete, partly because he was an absolute perfectionist, partly because he was very insecure about the quality of the data, the quality of the information, um, he had no access to uh, databases in a, in a digital sense. His databases were handwritten notes, you know, in boxes. Apparently his, his, his flat was, was littered with all of these organized boxes of notes and other artifacts as well from his travels, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the only way I had heard of him was Humboldt's Current. Mm. It was along the western face of South America <laughs> and a very important one. But then I, as I read into that, I read he didn't discover it. He was about a quarter of a century late, but it was named after him. Mm. It's interesting to find scientists of the past with their names on things. I wondered, is that a mark of uh, acknowledgement? Do they insist on things being named for themselves? How does that work? With Humboldt, I don't think it was. I think he as a sort of maybe arrogant and conceited as he was, he was extremely humble and was out to take care of any friend in need. Absolutely. Uh, I don't, I don't think that he sought out and I'm no expert on, on his, on his life necessarily, but from what I understand, he might've, he might've been a little embarrassed by something named after him. Mm -hmm. But that point that you bring up is interesting that I think he has more Geographical names, more species, more, well, like you said, the Humboldt Current, more places named after him than anybody else. And this is posthumously, I think. Mm-hmm. I, even, I even seem to remember it was either Nevada or Utah was supposed to be named Humboldt, <laughs> and, and they changed it. <laughs> they, they ended up not going with that. But there, you know, there's Humboldt, California. Uh, there's a Humboldt Park, I think, in Chicago. Um, and it, that's a that's a really interesting point that you bring up all that stuff that is named after him, and I think it is a it's a it's a historical uh, artifact of respect by the world and and what he brought to the world, and much of that is forgotten. 
Um, okay, my question is, <clears throat> why don't I know more about him? Well, that was one of my questions <laughs> for you actually coming into this is because when I gave my freeze lecture, I was thinking, you know, before I started, how many of the, uh, these people in the audience actually know about this person and, and what do they know about him? And I, and I think there's not much, yeah. you know, and back, and back when, when he was, I don't know, uh, I guess maybe the turn of the century from the 1700s to the 1800s, I don't know, I think he was about as famous as anybody on in the planet, at least mostly in the Western world, of course. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's the thing that has interested me. Uh, I've always thought, don't strive to leave your name on things. Just get things done and be content to be anonymous in the future. Because the people whom we remember, many of them are not very nice people. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good point. But... Uh, to work as diligently as he did, and I gather, not reading deeply into it, that he traveled everywhere. He was he was a traveler, and there are two um, adventures that he uh, undertook that uh, were uh, uh, a very important. Um, I don't know what you call it, groundwork for Cosmos and those lectures in Berlin that he was giving that ultimately became of, of Cosmos. And, and those two adventures I'm referring to, and what, the first one was in the late 1700s to the, Latin, to the Americas, where he spent most of those five years in the late 1700s uh, in the northern part of South America. Um, uh, very, very, very influential uh, in his thinking about how the natural world operates, uh, the role of of the humanness in, underst in understanding the natural world, and and also human beings. Uh, he was he was very concerned about the social well being of of humans in the Americas, and in particular in the northern part of South America at that time. Uh, he also traveled to. Uh, uh, north towards the end of that journey to Mexico, and then uh, finished in uh, the United States up in D.C., where he interacted a lot with Thomas, Thomas Jefferson. Um, that adventure was very important. And the second one came in the early 1800s to Asia. Um, and in between, before South America, in between South America and Asia, and after Asia, he's going to Paris often. He, he viewed uh, Berlin... Um, and his home country in general is not very exciting or beautiful. <laughs> and uh, and he, a, loved, uh -huh. he loved going to Paris in particular to interact with the most contemporary scientists and to understand the most contemporary um, aspects of, of astro uh, astronomy, of geology, geography, ecology, evolution. So he's interacting a lot. He's, he's, a, he's a very sort of social person. Uh, in that respect, so but those two two trips were uh, highly influential on him, and ultimately uh, on Cosmos. You know, when uh, <clears throat> when I read that brief summary of his, <clears throat> all I could think of was Edward O. Wilson. Yes, Wilson is a guy who stepped beyond the bounds, mm -hmm. and uh, you know he would he would not just study ants. But from that, he went on to study everything. Yeah. And to have that kind of 
global mind. Mm. It's one of the reasons I never pursued science beyond a bachelor's degree was I looked at my, uh, at my instructors. One of them was a world authority on midges. And I thought, is that what I want to be? Do I want to dig myself into a burrow and study only what is there? Or isn't the whole world rather more interesting? And so I consciously became a dilettante. And I've enjoyed life very much, asking people like you, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> well, your, your, uh, your connection... Whether, whether it was deliberate or not, between Wilson and Humboldt is interesting to me. Because my Freeze lecture was, I, I approached my Freeze lecture as not so much about Cosmos or about von Humboldt himself, but rather Humboldt's influence on other people and on other disciplines outside of the sciences. Um, and in, 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 in the last few years, I've become... Uh, much more interested in in prose from scientists. Actually, mm-hmm. uh, there's two authors who I uh, I'm really uh, envious of. Not envious of. I, I really enjoyed their work. That's uh, David George Haskell. He's a biology professor at the University of the South, and Robin Wall Kimmerer. She is a professor at one of the SUNY colleges in forestry, writing magnificent work on the natural world, and not from a technical standpoint. There's technical stuff in, in the prose, but it, the writing is so interesting. And, um, and anyway, I, I, his, Humboldt's influence on people, either directly or indirectly, from his life to today, I, I just see, I, I see the, the uh, uh, I can't think of a good metaphor here, but just the threads of connection between what he was writing and, and, and teaching the world and what people are still like writing and teaching today. You know, uh, you mentioned earlier the emotional aspect of things. When I was dissecting animals, I would think, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know, I'm cutting up what was once a living thing and checking parts of it. And I have to do this because that's what the Course says. In comparative vertebrate anatomy, you've got to know all this stuff. But I thought, what is it like? And then that led me into life. Mm. And life consists of killing and eating other things to stay alive. And life doesn't care about anything except reproducing itself everywhere. Mm. Uh, what am I dealing with? Yeah. I mean, you, you, when you get to thinking like that, you don't want to get into that burrow. Yeah. You want to look around and try to find out what is going on here. Absolutely. And uh, Humboldt, just from that brief synopsis, I thought this was that kind of guy. Yeah. He really wanted to know. And you're right. Back in his day, you couldn't go to your computer and double-check statistics. Right. He had to do it the hard way. And the fact that he chose to do that, and from this massive personal data, he was able to structure is two volume, pardon me, two volume cosmos, a really remarkable man. Mm-hmm. Is cosmos is cosmos a tough read? Cosmos is not easy reading, but but one of I, I was actually doing some reading just before the interview today, Don, and 
And what struck me was uh, the, the writing is not the very structured English way of writing. It's more of the romantic French-German way of writing uh, a sentence that is composed of numerous, numerous words, and, 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 uh, but, but stringing the words that he did together in super long sentences. It's fascinating to read. It's interesting to read, but you have to spend time with it for sure. What, what do you take of this quote? Thus, in the sphere of natural investigation, as in poetry and painting, the delineation of that which appeals most strongly to the imagination derives its collective interest from the vivid truthfulness with which the individual features are portrayed. How about that? Huh? <laughs> How about that? <laughs> That's an interesting quote. That's a fun quote from Cosmos, absolutely. Uh-huh. Um, my, the title of my Freeze lecture was Vivifying the Imagination. And it's taken directly from Cosmos and partly from this quote right here. Um, I, I wanted to focus my lecture on uh, on the more spiritual part of the natural world, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And especially what, uh, I guess the question I was asking myself in this lecture and preparing for the lecture and the audience is, what is the role of imagination in not just doing science, and understanding the natural world, but in our own lives. Um, that's part of, of uh, it's a huge driver, uh, a personal driver of mine right now in, uh, in trying to understand the world as it is, for better or for worse. Uh, but I find it, uh, uh, like this quote in particular, as, as a way of, of nudging me towards, I guess a challenge towards uh, getting away from objectifying the natural world. Like you talked about the dissection of an animal. You know, we're looking at an animal. It, it, we're just focusing on the animal and the parts of the animal and the animal itself. And, but what is the connection of that animal to, to other things out in, uh, in the natural world and to me? Um, and it's those connections that he really uh, emphasized about the natural world. I mean, he basically said the natural world is basically interaction and reciprocity. There's no objectified thing. There's no one single tree. There's no one animal that we should look at. He was actually, from what I, my reading, he was pretty uh, critical of, um, of Linnaeus in just focusing on naming animals and plants and all that. And, he, and he's almost questioning, what is the point of that? You don't <laughs> understand how the natural world just, how, how the world works just from focusing on that one thing, you know, a species, uh, and then stopping there. Well, uh, what, do you, what do you think of that quote? <clears throat> the thing that appealed to me is you do it as you handle poetry and painting. Mm. You know, that is not in those things. <clears throat> and the poetry, you got to get the... Uh, you got to get the rhythm right. Yeah. If you're using a form, you have to observe the form. And yet, there is something beyond that. Mm-hmm. Something beyond the, the line and the rhyme that lifts it off the page. And painting in the same way, you have to make those strokes very carefully to achieve a certain effect. But as the whole thing takes shape, what is your response to that? That's a great way of saying it. That's yeah, a great it's, point. Uh, 
we don't look we don't look at that aspect of life very closely. It's impressive how you can just go right by things. I often tell people, I remember when one of my closest friends died, and uh, I was in downtown Rock Island the next week, and I looked around, and I thought, doesn't anybody realize he's not here? Yeah. You know, it 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 changed my world. Mm. And you start to think of the interconnections you have with people, with things, with your work, the way you do your work. Uh, you have to be precise, but there's more to it than precision. There's something that animates you in the human spirit to do anything. And that's why I think some of the thinkers in the East when they look at the spiritual aspect of everything, yeah, the way you move, the way you walk, the way everything has some spiritual aspect to it. And it seems to me Humboldt was deeply into this without having read deeply into him at all. Just from reading of how he handled things, I thought, yeah, he was, he was very much with us in today's concept of ecology. And, Absolutely. Yeah. But that was not usual for his time. No, no. And uh, one of maybe his biggest influential friends was Goethe. And Goethe was very influenced by Humboldt. Goethe wrote something to the effect, spending an afternoon with Humboldt is like a lifetime of, of experiences. <laughs> Because he was a, he, he was a, a, a huge personality, absolutely, even as a young person. But he and Goethe spent uh, a lot of years together and had this reciprocal um, effect on each other with the scientific and the artistic, going back and forth and understanding the natural world. I keep saying understanding the natural world, but both of them were like, they dedicated their lives to doing that. Goethe was, he did a lot of great science. <laughs> And uh... well, you know the fact that uh, we we tend to separate those things. We tend to put the material and spiritual in different uh, categories. Yeah. But th putting them all together changes the way we view the world. Yeah. And I think that some of what is being done today, you know, people are demonstrating about all sorts of things, climate change, yeah. on which our very lives depend. And others think, well, don't get so emotional about it. You know, yeah. well, let's see if we can work this out. Absolutely. That's a good and point. You don't have to go running around the streets and so on. And I think, well, there comes a point at which you think, yes, I do have to run around the street and yell. And don't don't you see what's happening now? Yeah. Are you really just going to live tomorrow the same way you did today? Yeah. Are you not going to change? And uh, I think Humboldt is very much into that. Oh, Humboldt was arguably the first person to investigate that and write convincingly of the role of human activities on climate change. That time, that that adventure, he went on to, uh, to South America, he was seeing firsthand about deforestation and how that affects rainfall patterns um, 
and therefore uh, the sustainability of humans living in a place. Short-term gain at the expense of long-term sustainability is what he was questioning about people back then. He really, I think he was the first to write about that and, and demonstrate that pretty convincingly. Well, you know, the short-term gain seems to be in the saddle right now. Yeah. We're not thinking about the long-term no. gain. Yeah. And when you look at these questions now that Humboldt brought up and that we are dealing with today, the question always is, well, what do I have to give up? Mm-hmm. Because society's become so complicated, we have so many gadgets. When I think of the process of doing the laundry, when I first got married, we had the washing machine, the wringer, the tubs, and so on. Yeah. Had to hang things outside. And now you throw it in, you push a switch, and you go away, and you come back, throw it in another thing. And my wife used to say the clothes aren't as clean as they used to be. Mm. <laughs> and I think, I thought, well, you may have a point, but it's so much easier this way. Yeah. And people are afraid that we'll have to give up our ease. Yeah. And uh, we will. We will if we're going to save ourselves. And I think the unfortunate route that many are willing to take is, well, when people come storming in, because this is the only livable place, we'll just have to kill them Mm, in order for us to survive. Yeah. I think that is not the answer. Yeah. So it's... He taps into something that I think is inherent in science. If you think about science, it's not just doing science, but thinking about it and its implications and thinking where you're situated in that science. Mm. Uh, obviously, it's affected you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's affected me a lot. You, you asked the question, um, uh, Cosmos is not an easy read, and, and it isn't, and it's quite long as well. But uh, uh, one of my goals for the future is to spend more time with the text and uh, read between the lines, if you will, of those symbolic things. Well, that's, you know, you set yourself quite a goal there. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a lot. It it is a lot, uh, but it's exciting. And and I'm not worried about uh, any end point. I'm I'm just, I guess, on on a... a new journey at this part of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, is, what is your specialty? My specialty in biology is birds. And uh, it was about 2016, 2017. I was really, uh, in my opinion, very happy with my colleagues and the collaborative work we were doing in uh, our bird studies. One of the things that I found out I guess I was thinking about towards the end of that time, the 16, 2016, 2017, is that, golly, my, my work really isn't impacting the field much. I was pretty disappointed about that. And at the same time, one of my colleagues in biology, he retired, and he was the director of uh, Augustana College field stations, which are outdoor laboratories. They're Augustana properties. And anyway, so now uh, in 2016, I, I became the director, the manager of those properties, and we have three of them. So I was able to transition away from formal bird research. I still study birds, absolutely, but not in a formal sense. And so I, I was sort of thrust into managing these properties in a practical sense, but then understanding them in a spiritual sense so I can do right by them 
in in terms of how we deal with like invasive species and how we deal with certain uh, very sensitive habitats. Like one of the properties that we have in Milan, uh, the name of the field station is Collinson Ecological Preserve. And anyway, it has hill prairies that's, that are very interesting and worth working for. Well, I would say that you've taken a good lesson from Humboldt. Dr. Stephen Hager, thank you very much for being here. I bet Rebecca is sorry she had to miss today. Thank you. But uh, keep on keeping on. Thank you, Don. And that'll do it for this session of Scribble. Uh, Rebecca, we and I should be back next time, and we hope you will too when we get into another discussion on Scribble.